Greetings, and welcome to Scholarish, a podcast in which we discuss the road to reason for the next generation. I'm your host, Quinn Weinsaffel. Have you ever had the displeasure of viewing a political debate? Ever seen two family members fight over religion at the Thanksgiving table? Ever seen or participate in a YouTube comment section where people just don't get it and argue repeatedly the same points over and over? You're not alone. In fact, I bet many have had the great idea of a good debate tarnished through many, many bad experiences. You see, regardless of the topic at hand, there's a certain art and a science that many don't practice when it comes to discussing disagreements. And I believe that it's our collective job to rectify such an issue. I've had a lot of personal experiences with debate. I was trained in formal debates when I was in high school, and I participated in many, competing against um, very, very talented and skilled debaters. And I realized that as I got older and into college and got uh, around more and more academic individuals, the skills that I learned early on in my educational career have benefited me far more than at first glance. And the more and more I have disagreements with family members or with peers or coworkers, the more and more I realize that I have an interesting perspective on debate that many don't hold. So if possible, today I want to teach you the basic fundamentals of what makes a debate great. And I think that with a little bit of application, you can not only win 99% of all of the debates that you participate in, but you will be far happier when you do so. So there's this podcast will be broken down into three parts for both brevity and clarity. The first is we're going to talk about consensus and non-consensus. Basically, I believe there's only a few types of debate people actually have. The second is going to be, what does it mean to win or lose a debate? And then the third is going to be the marks of a great debate. There are 10 tenets that I believe are the core behind every good disagreement. So to begin very quickly, there's only a couple absolute truths. The first is that absolute truth exists. And the second is that what that truth is will be debated for all time. But I find that the types of debates, if we think of the largest possible frame we can think of, there's only a few. And I don't believe that my list is totally exhaustive, but I think that if you listen closely, you'll be able to see that all of the debates that you have in your life or all of the debates that you hear fall within these general disagreements. So first, there's a disagreement of terms, semantical debates as we call them, whether it be a biblical term that people debate their meaning of or people debate the meaning of different words in their language. These are semantical debates in their nature. Some people don't like it when you say a certain word because they have different meanings or connotations. The second is a disagreement of observation. These are conceptual debates. Uh, The idea of racism is a conceptual debate, the concept of race. A third type of debate would be a disagreement of the practical. These are policy debates. We see these both very formally and informally. If you've ever had the disagreement politically with someone, you've probably had the issue of policy debates. In fact, 90% of environmental debates fall into this category. For instance, you cannot look at someone who doesn't believe in global warming and say, oh, you must hate the environment. I haven't met a single person who hates the environment, but the way we treat the environment differs policy-wise, person to person. 
The fourth is a disagreement of philosophy or theology. So someone's overarching ideas about morality may differ from another. I call these ideological debates. And lastly, there's a disagreement of relation or interpersonal debates. There's marital and family debates. Um, I put down Jerry Springer as an example. Basically, anytime you're arguing your relation to something else or someone else's relationship with you, you're engaged in a relational debate. This can be a little hard to understand, so I'll just give one quick example. If you've ever watched a couple, like in middle school or high school, debate if they're, like disagree on if they're dating or not, you've watched a relational debate in, in person. So which of these kind of overarching debate disagreements are the best? I would say that there is no best type. In fact, all might be beneficial or necessary depending on the situation, but their execution, the way we go about these types of disagreements are lacking. And if you want to debate that point, I would be happy then to take you up on that observational debate. So what does it mean to be productive in a debate? So we already know kind of the general ideas on what we disagree on, terms, observation, practice, philosophy, relation. So what does it mean to win or to lose a discussion? Well, I should probably start with this. Winning a debate is not the concession of your opponent. You do not win when your opponent cannot fight anymore. Also, you do not lose a debate if you concede. This is not the terms of winning or losing. A speaker wins a debate when the opponent understands the speaker's position more and is able to accept that their point of view is valid and exists. Second, a speaker will lose a debate when the opponent is unable to understand their position as real and valid. So if you make it to the end of whatever discussion you are and your opponent does not understand you anymore and cannot understand where you're coming from, you've lost that debate. If you get to the end of it and they go, hmm, I don't agree, but I understand where you're coming from, congratulations, you've won that debate. They don't necessarily have to change their position or their mind, you just have to make it to the end of the round. And they have to make it to the end of the round too. So this is, brings us into the idea of attackers and defenders in debates. So there's normally a person who starts with a finger point and says, you're wrong. We're going to call these people attackers. The person who's going on the offensive to change the idea of someone else, to, to show their position is more valid than their defenders. And then the defenders are the people that say, no, I'm right, you're wrong, all right? There's a few different ways these debates can be formed for the sake of the simplicity and this podcast we are going to only refer to attacker defender debates there are debates where you are offensive on both sides where both sides are attackers if you've ever watched a presidential debate you've seen an offensive offensive debate but we're going to avoid discussing them here um, you'll also see in very rare instances defensive-defensive debates where it's basically a marathon to see who can outlast their opponents. They're really rare, incredibly nuanced, and I'm going to avoid talking about them. The majority of debates occur 
in the offensive defensive side. So someone comes to you and says, you're wrong. And you have to say, no, I'm not. You're wrong. Or no, I'm not. And here's why. These are offensive defensive debates. Now, I'm going to even simplify this more. And I genuinely believe that there is only six strategies, three for an attacker and three for a defender. All other strategies fall within these categories. So there's only really nine kinds of debates that actually occur. So let's start for the defender. Someone comes to you and says, you're wrong. I want you to imagine now that you're a matador in a bullfighting arena and your opponent is a bull charging you. What are the three possible ways you can defend against a charging bull? Well, first of all, you can win by forcing the bull to submit. So you can grab the bull by the horns and pull them to a stop. This works if you are being charged by a very, very small bull. A good example of this style would be Jordan Peterson's debate style. He just facts and logic. Ben Shapiro, another great debater, facts and logic, win by submissions, make your opponent bend. In the theological realm, Augustine and Calvin both took these approaches in their debates. You can go through the horns. This is the second option. This is a rather detrimental option. Uh, I call this a win by destruction. So you, the bull impales you, but you hopefully impale the bull on the way, and then you bleed out last. Mutually assured destruction to win the debate and last the longest. I put a name down for this. I've seen it happen only a few times, but Milo Yiannopoulos is the individual who most embodies this, I would say, in a debate, where he will let the opponent say, yes, you're right, but you're wrong here. And just whoever's last standing wins. The third option is you can jump around the bull. You can evade your opponent based on significance and counterattack. Jordan Peterson also embodies this really, really well, where he will kind of sweep the leg or jump out the way of the horns and then kind of go around the back and, and, and re-attack. So let's flip the script. You are telling someone that they're wrong. What are the strategies if you're the bull in a situation? Well, again, there's only three, and they actually look almost exactly like the defender strategies. The first is that if you're a really big bull, you can just trample your opponent. You can win by domination. So just knock your opponent out of the ring and they won't be able to say that your position is invalid. James R. White is probably the number one bull in this match. Um, I would also say Jeff Durbin. All of their debates on Apologia, they just come in and facts and logic, they want to plow over their opponent. The second is what I call the bull in a china shop approach. If you just flail around the ring long enough and you'll knock everything out and then you'll be the only one left standing. This is another win by destruction. And the example I wrote down here was Donald Trump. If you ever watch Donald Trump on a debate stage, he doesn't care how much he's attacked. He just attacks more back. Burn the whole stage around him, be the last person standing, and you win. This works if you're a rich billionaire from New York. Doesn't work if you're not. The third strategy, and my least favorite of all of them, is called the Ferdinand the Bull strategy. So sometimes, and you might have experienced this interpersonally, if somebody tells you you're wrong and you go to challenge them, they'll say, oh, but I don't want to debate you. They'll Ferdinand you, basically. Oh, I'm just, you know, really weak. Don't, don't, don't. I don't want to fight you, you know. And they win their debate 
by evading you and just existing. If their position exists and is valid for long enough, you can do nothing but accept them and their criticism as real. This is really difficult. I've seen it done a couple times in the political spectrum. It's a stretch, but I think that Bernie Sanders is an excellent example here. He's been consistent for however many decades, six decades at this point. He's always been the exact same politician. And he's basically saying that his position is valid because he's still there in a way. So he's kind of, in a way, the ultimate Ferdinand. Ferdinands are, are super hard to debate and, and make for terrible debates, in my opinion. But for the sake of the discussion, those are all the possible strategies of a debate. There's only six of them, three for the attackers and three for the defenders. And if you put them on a grid, that creates nine possible debates that you can have. So pick the ones you want and understand the way your opponent's fighting and then adjust accordingly. For instance, if you want to win by domination and then your opponent wants to win by destruction, you're going to look like a terrible person. If you're trying to Ferdinand and your opponent's going to try to dominate you, you have a really big issue because they're just going to say that you have to fight them in order to win. So you have to make some concessions in all of this. So those are the six strategies. And remember, all of those strategies apply in any of the disagreements, and they apply both in formal settings and informal settings. So whether this is around the table or on a political stage, regardless of where they are, those are kind of the six general ideas of, of what a, a strategy a debater might take. So now let's look at the marks of a great debate. And I put this last for a very specific reason. You kind of have to know the strategies before you understand the correct way to implement them. If you, you can't learn kind of the implementation before the strategy. So there are 10 of these. Number one, the speakers know the topics in their breadth and their depth. So a speaker in a good debate, a, a good speaker, and this can be an informal debate or a formal debate, might know the topic really well and must know the topic really well in order to have validity. So they're not arguing based on feelings or, you know, experience. They're arguing facts. They're arguing positions. They're taking a definite stand. They're not arguing something that's related to them but not a part of them they're not relating based on they're not arguing based on passion they they know their topics and they've actually spent some amount of time studying them and this can be anything you know whether it be art or it would be um, science it can be any any sort of topic anything that you know about and remember there's levels of knowledge you if you know a topic infinitely more than the other person that's not a real debate because the other speaker doesn't have the same topic topical knowledge so you have to be roughly equal in your knowledge base in order to have a good debate so both speakers must know their topics and breadth and depth equally roughly speaking two and this one's really important the speakers must debate in good faith so this means that the speakers must care about their position and their opponent's position. 
James R. White does the greatest job of this in debates where he genuinely gives his opponent the ability to claim their position and fully embrace that they have a right to debate. A debate fails the moment you say they shouldn't even exist. This doesn't even matter. They're stupid. You have to care both about what you believe and you have to care that they believe what they believe. So this is kind of the the basis for a good faith debate. A lot stems from this idea of good faith. Three, the speakers rely on substance and strategy to win. If you've ever been in a debate, you've realized that it doesn't matter what you know. It also matters how you say what you know. And just knowing a point doesn't actually give you the ability to win. So you, you'd be amazed at how many winning debates I've, I've watched and I've participated in that are lost on technicalities. So you might have the greatest content and you might lose the debate in a formal setting simply because your opponent followed the rules. So your strategy must matter and it's the same as your substance. If you've ever been in a relational debate, what's the thing we always say? It doesn't matter what you said. It matters how you say it that matters. So this is the that tenet. And again, this helps a lot if you're in good faith. Debaters that debate in good faith understand that their opponents are going to bring substance and strategy just like you are. All right, four. The speakers concede points lost and capitalize on points won. I can't tell you how many team members I had and how many people I meet on a daily basis that think that debates are all or nothing battles, that you have to 100% win every single point, and that's how you win a debate. For the record, that is not even what a domination debate is. The domination debate can still be a 51% victory to a 49% loss. You don't have to 100-0 your opponent. You, you simply have to be the last, the, the stronger of the two options. That's kind of the core of a domination debate. And there's a lot of times when I'll say things that are incorrect or I'll make a, a logical error or I've made a mistake or a flub or maybe I, I missed my strategy. And the opponent or a moderator will call me out and say that was wrong. It's not a sign of weakness and it's not going to lose you any more points if you acknowledge it. Failure to acknowledge it will only hurt your position more. So when you're in a debate formally or informally, it's totally okay to go, you're right. I'm going to give you that. I'm going to concede that point. Because it's better to concede the point and win the debate and win the person. Because remember, winning is not making the other person concede. It's better to get the opponent to understand your position and you do that through being very honest with the things you win and the things you lose there's two types of sports that i think are really important the first is fencing fencing does this exactly um you rarely ever see battles in fencing or in combat sports such as like uh, boxing or mma that uh, win 100 no in both of these sports it's all on the points and the technicality the second is chess. In chess, almost never do you win a game without pawns lost or without rooks lost. Or, you know, sometimes it's down to simply um, a knight, a rook, and a king. And that's all you need for a checkmate in a lot of instances. So you can lose a lot of points and still get the checkmate at the end. Debates work very the same way. So I wish a lot of people would stop thinking of it as a hundred no thing. All right, I'll get off my high horse here. Five, 
The speakers follow all pre-established rules of etiquette and conversational skills. This is both formal and informal. So for instance, in a presidential debate, there are preset rules for how long someone's allowed to speak, what will happen if they talk out of turn, yada, yada. And then if you're watching a debate, you realize all of those go out the window because the speakers aren't actually speaking in good faith and it's a nightmare. If you watch an actual debate, which I would recommend everyone do, it's quite interesting that they're super respectful and like to the moderators and to their opponents and they actually understand that hey I have to not only follow the rules that I wrote down and agreed to but I want to make sure my opponent knows that I'm doing so in good faith so this can be in formal settings or informal settings you never want to say something in an informal debate or an informal disagreement that isn't colloquial established as correct so you don't want to suddenly go well i'm going to give you my speech now and they're like well we're just having a conversation why would you do that so you want to follow all pre-established rules six the speaker may end a debate in a draw only under the mutual agreement so this is kind of an interesting one there's a few ways a debate can end but if a you can't simply say, well, this debate's over and then like nobody wins and then walk away. The speakers have to mutually agree to disagree and then be done. Both speakers have to do that. One side of the party can't say, well, I guess we'll just disagree and then walk away. That's an unfair debate and that's not in good faith. Good faith means that both have to have the same input of, yeah, I think we should just table this for now. And that's how they are drawn to amicable conclusions. Seven, the speaker reserves the right to concede or to lose only when faced with a goodwilled opponent. Think of it this way. A speaker will never concede a debate if they know their opponent will take a pound of flesh from them. A goodwilled opponent and a goodwill debater will never capitalize on a conceding opponent. They will say, I'm so glad we had this conversation. Thank you so much for participating in this debate. I hope we can do this some other time. You know, here are some, you know, parting gifts, things to read, yada, yada, and then kind of go about their way. The moment a speaker feels as though if they concede or lose their opponent will take a pound of flesh and will not be goodwill towards them, there is no way anyone would concede to that. And I see this a lot of time in a relational debates. If, if you feel as though your partner will completely topple you after you say you were right and I was wrong, you will never say you're wrong. You will always fight to the bitter end to your own detriment and to theirs. You're not actually having a good debate there. So, eight. The speaker will focus on the topic at hand independent of all external points or positions. I saw this a lot in amateur debates uh, formally when people would bring in kind of kind of Hail Mary, you know, surprise witness positions and points. They would they would try to bring things in that weren't a part of the pre-established structure. And again, this goes back to being a goodwill debater. If that's your position and you think that you're going to win by kind of having a gotcha moment, you're you're not being a very honest intellectual debater you're you're simply trying to win the day and remember the goal of a debate is not to win the day the goal of the debate is to win the person nine 
The speaker relies on either mutual judgments or independent validations for structural and procedural judgments. And what I mean by that is, if you're in an informal debate, let's say with your significant other, you both have to agree on rulings. So if someone's, if you're in a debate with your partner or your spouse, and they say, I don't like that you said that, you have to stop your debating lens and go, hmm, did I break a colloquial rule? Yes, no. And then have kind of like a, a like a sidebar discussion for mutual judgments. Or, and this is really helpful if you have an independent source to validate what you're saying. Um, I, I honestly think that like around family dinner tables, there's always one person that's a little bit more kind of on the fence and is able to kind of go like, oh, you said that kind of wrong or, hey, be careful, you're getting a little too nitpicky and then give some independent validation for some of those. And then if you're in a, in a personal debate with your significant other, a good thing of this is like, hey, if, if we really can't have an honest debate here, we should get a, a third party counselor, like an actual licensed counselor in here to, to help us out. This is really easy in formal settings. There's always a moderator in a formal debate. So that kind of doesn't have a problem. And number 10, speakers do not lie. This is the most important one, and this is kind of the hard issue of what I think makes a lot of debates really terrible, is the speakers lie to themselves, they lie to their opponents, and then they lie to their audience or their moderators. We see this in political debates every single time. The key is the speakers are speaking in good faith and in truth. The moment you lie, you disqualify yourself and you immediately lose the debate. I don't care if it's interpersonal or formal, you will immediately lose the debate if you lie. Even if no one catches you, you know that you've lost the debate. You've ruined a good conversation. So do not lie. So that was a lot of information, but just a quick recap. The kind of core of a good debate is on five kind of disagreements, terms, observation, practical, philosophic, and relational. There's only six strategies, three for each side possible. And you win a debate when you get your opponent to accept that your position is valid and exists. If you cannot do that, you're going to have a really hard time going forward. This has been Quinn Weinsaffel, and you've listened to Scholarish.